Can you hear me? Good. Are you sitting comfortably? It's my uh, great pleasure to finish the series called The Unstoppable Church. It's unstoppable because God is unstoppable. Um, so we're thinking about the unstoppable church. Uh, we're also thinking, in a sense, about the unstoppable Apostle Paul. But one day, of course, he died. Uh, so he's not unstoppable in the same sense. But his story and the truth, the truths that his story contains, they are what is unstoppable. And if you're a Christian today, those truths are embedded in your lives and by the grace of God and through the power of the Spirit are developing and bearing fruit and having an impact on your world. So we're in Acts chapter 20 and eventually we're going to be reading from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. So you might like to get into Acts chapter 20. As some of you know, Maureen and I for the last month have been in North America and uh, it took two Air Canada flights to get us home. The first one was from Ottawa to Toronto and then from Toronto to Gatwick before the nightmare of all their luggage stuff started. On, uh, on, on that first flight from Ottawa to Toronto, um, one of the cabin crew started handing out newspapers. And because I've heard of it before, I thought I'd take a copy of the Toronto Globe and Mail. Um, American newspapers are nice shape, aren't they? They, unlike anything that we've got in this country. And in their life and arts section, there was this very interesting article. I found it interesting anyway, you might not. It's by, uh, a, I was going to say, a young woman. She might not be young, but uh, she's a Canadian called Angie. And uh, she says this, When I was a student funeral director... <laughs> yeah, well, actually, when I was a teenager, that's what I wanted to be. So it struck bells with me already, yeah. Love taking funerals. The one I won't be able to take is my own. So. When I was a student funeral director, we had a non-denominational celebrant on staff. Let's call him Larry. Larry would stand in front of the casket and begin each funeral with these words. Take a moment to look at all the people around you here today. So we'll have a good look round. Let me tell you one thing. One of you will be next. <laughs> I choked on my coffee when I first heard this introduction, and there were audible gasps and murmurs from the mourners gathered. His follow-up was intriguing, though. He continued, How do you want to be remembered? And being the nice Canadian, of course, she says, I've had many years to think about this. I've decided that I want to be remembered for being kind. Canadians are very nice, kind people until they get behind the, the wheels of their cars. Um, <laughs> no, Canadians tell me that as well, so it's, it's quite, quite safe to say that. They are maniacs behind their steering wheels. What do you want to be remembered for? 
At the end of your life, what do you want to be remembered for? What we're going to look at in Acts chapter 20, in a sense, is Paul, after long travels around the known world, or much of the known world, he's actually giving something of his own epitaph. He's telling us some of the things that he wants to be remembered for. Now, you might want to be remembered for being nice. You might want to be remembered for being kind. You might want to be remembered for a follower of Christ who has a, an immense impact on other people's lives. I don't know what you want to be remembered for, but just think about that. I'm going I'm to read Acts chapter 20, 13 to the end. It's quite a long passage. I'm reading it from the, uh, from the ESV. I have to put my hand up and say it's not the, the version that I've studied it in. And um, so, so the language is a little bit different to what you'll hear later. But uh, if you go to verse 13, what you have to remember, of course, I'm sure this was talked about la last week, is that a young man called Eutychus has just fallen out of a third-story window and died. Wow, mate, that's awful. Paul... Pauses the, uh, presses the pause button, go, goes down, revives him, and then comes up again and carries on talking until dawn. So he's determined to get said what he w wanted to get said. But he's, he's restless. He's, he's on a mission. He's a man who's got some goals. And uh, as soon as dawn comes, he's off with his crowd, with his team. Verse 13, but going ahead to the ship, this is Luke writing in the first person, so he's including himself in the narrative, we. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Azos. They're in Troas, and they're moving around the eastern Aegean. That's the sea between Italy and Greece. And they're kind of island hopping. It's not a cruise. This is probably a trading vessel. Um, and... It's moving as quickly as it can in the, in the conditions. Intending to take Paul aboard there, for he, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. This is intriguing, isn't it? Instead of going on the 40-mile coastal route on board the boat, he decides to walk 20 miles. It's shorter. And you think, well, I'm not too keen on walking 20 miles. I wonder why he was walking. Perhaps it was reflecting on what had just happened. But Paul wasn't one for looking back. He was one for looking forward. And knowing that he's going to speak to the elders from the Ephesian church for one last time, he may well be reflecting on what he's going to say to them. How is he going to sum up his adventure of faith with them? He's... Convinced he's never going to see them again. What's he going to say? Or is he thinking further ahead? As we will read, he knows that some difficult things await him in the future when he gets to Jerusalem. How's he going to react to when everything starts collapsing around, around him? When the going gets really tough? 
Remember, his heart's desire is to get to Rome. He hasn't got there yet. And God has his own way, as you all know if you've read the end of Acts, of getting Paul to Rome. And we might have a lot of fixed desires, but God often has different ways of fulfilling those desires. And he often takes us by surprise with how he gets us from A to B. So, um, for he, for, for, so he, he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Azos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. So they've bypassed Ephesus and now they're south of Ephesus and Miletus is on the coast, Ephesus is a bit inland. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, that's the province of Asia, the Roman province, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Was the Feast of Pentecost, which is a Jewish festival, one of the three festivals that Jewish men are required to attend in person every year, was that just a date in his diary, or was it more significant than that? You can remember, though Paul was absent, on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 20, that was when the Spirit came upon the church. Is he desperate to get back to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost because of all that it holds, because of all that it means? There's a suggestion in my mind, anyway, yours might, your mind might not be the same as mine, that he's desperate for more of the Spirit. He wants to be there on the day of Pentecost, where it all started, where the Spirit was poured out. And we've had lots of references to the Holy Spirit already this morning. How often do we pray, how often do you pray for more of the Spirit in your life? Do you, do I pray in tongues? Do we speak in tongues every day? Paul assures us in one of his letters that the person who speaks in tongues is building him or herself up. We're doing ourselves good. This morning we, we heard a tongue interpreted as a prayer. It was put into language that we understand. But the gift of tongues is one of those precious gifts that God gives us so that we can pray when we don't know how to pray. And there are lots of other gifts, 30, 40 gifts of the Spirit mentioned, I think, in Scripture. And how many do we have? How many do we want? Are we content with one? Or do we want a whole tool belt full of them so that we can pull out the one we need in any given set of circumstances? How hungry for the person of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in our lives, are we? I'm challenging myself with that because it's so, so easy just to, in a sense, get on with life and we get preoccupied and a lot of these things fall by the wayside. Let's be desperate 
for more of the Spirit. Desperate for more of the Spirit. It's not emotionalism. It's not a peripheral. It's the absolute essence of who we are as God's people. It's by the power of the Spirit that we accomplish anything. It's by the power of the Spirit I get out of bed in the morning. It's by the power of the Spirit that you go to work or you look after children or, or whatever it is that fills your, your day. It's by the power of the Spirit. So Paul is desperate to get to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And so the rest of the chapter unfolds with his conversation with them. Have you ever walked from here to Dover? Anyone done that? No, okay, that's about 25 miles. John's not done it. Okay, that's as the crow flies. Um, to go from Miletus to Ephesus is longer than that. It's 30 or 40 miles. So you've got to send a messenger. Then the elders have got to come back once they've packed their overnight bags. That shows devotion, doesn't it? That shows some love. That shows some affection. That shows the depth of the relationship that Paul has with these people. You can remember, of course, that he spent three years in Ephesus. You only have to go back to chapter 19 of the chapter to find out how he has spent his time in Ephesus. He's got into trouble, of course, as usually happens with with Paul when he starts preaching Christian truth publicly. Uh, we have the great riot over the status of Diana, the pagan goddess. Um, but these people, these leaders at least, are prepared to come all this way to spend time with this man with whom they have this deep and affectionate relationship. And so he speaks to them. We don't know where. Maybe in a, a building, who knows. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, in, in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This man, in a sense, has one ambition. It's to finish the race and to complete the task that Jesus has given him. Now, he was able to do that because he knew what race he was in and he knew what task... God had given him. 
So he wasn't whiffly waffly thinking, oh, what shall I do today? I'm not sure. Uh, where shall I go? Da, 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 da. He was led by the Spirit. He was constrained by the Spirit. He was motivated by the Spirit. And God, from the very beginning, from his conversion in Damascus, he'd outlined to Paul what his mission in life was to be. It was to take the glories of God to the Gentiles. He knew what he was on life on, on earth to do. He knew what his life was all about. And I wonder if we are as clear as, as he was. You think, well, I'm retired. I've had enough of all that. I'm, you know, ten medallias and boil up another kettle of tea and listen to the archers or whatever. Get my skateboard out and go down the front. You're never too old to skateboard, so I've been told. <laughs> um, we often think, well, I'm retired, so my mission in life is completed. But actually, it's not over yet. It will be over the day you die. And so, no matter how young or old we are, no matter how mobile or immobile we are, we all have a mission in life. We all have the, the purpose that God has given us. Now, if you can't think of anything else, if you're not convinced by God that it's something specific, then clearly it has to be what Paul is talking about here, testifying to the grace of God. In other words, sharing our faith. And the great challenge for us not only is to ask for more of the Holy Spirit, to be desperate for more of his power and his motivation, but to actually have the courage to share the gospel with other people. And so we say, oh, oh, that's easy, I'm doing it all day, every day. Is anyone like that? Sharing the gospel all day, every day? I very much doubt it. We often have those opportunities, but if you're anything like, like me, you kind of sidestep the opportunity a little bit and think, oh no, I'll, I'll talk to them next time. But there might not be a next time. It's a huge challenge, isn't it, to share the gospel. The thing that someone shared with us, one way or another, we've responded to the gospel, and yet it seems to be so difficult to share the gospel with other people. Has anyone had the opportunity to share the gospel with someone this week? Great, that's fantastic. Okay, that's two. Next week, three. Next week, four. Wouldn't it be good one day if Steve or whoever's leading the meeting said, um, if you've got a, a testimony of sharing the gospel with someone, could you just... Come up to the microphone now. And every seat was left empty. And there's this lovely queue out the front. Yeah, I had this opportunity. I had this opportunity. Da, 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 da. This is what Paul's life seems to be about. He's sharing the gospel as often as he can. But he knows that there is something specific in his call from, from God. And that is to share it with the Gentiles, with the non-Jews. Moving on. 
verse 25. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among, among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I didn't cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Um, it's an imperfect verb apparently. So they kissed him and they kept kissing him and they kept kissing him and they kept kissing him because they didn't want him to go. And they were holding on to him and holding on to him and holding on to him. Such is the depth of their affection. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Then chapter 21 says, When we had parted from them and set sail, the voyage continues. In the NIV, it tra translates that, When we had torn ourselves away from them. When we torn ourselves away. So what we've got here is a man who is leaving some dear friends behind and... What he has left behind is a community of love and affection and deep devotion. Not only to God, not only to the Lord Jesus, not only to one another, but to him. Because he's the one who came and planted the seed in Ephesus in the first place. Remember in chapter 19 of Acts, where he encounters 12 men. And that's where it all started. Priscilla and Aquila are there as well. Um, two Christians that he's encountered before and a part, part of his team. Um, but a mighty church has developed as a result of this man sharing his life for three years. One of the phrases that crops up a lot is, with tears. I'm not saying that Paul spent his whole lifetime crying, but there were so many things that moved him. He was moved by the grace of God. He was moved by the love that the Lord Jesus had for him. 
In one of his letters, he describes himself as um, belonging to the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And you can imagine the ink getting a bit smudged because that would probably start him crying again. Uh, we often think of Paul as this um, you know, tough, unfeeling, little hunchback Jew with his gnarled hands all ruined by all the needles he's been thrusting through the leather that he works with. Um, and yet he's this affectionate man who can create incredibly devoted relationships. And now he's leaving. Now he's leaving. One of the things that God is building here, and he wants to do, con continue developing it here in the beacon, is this community of love, where, where people love one another from the heart. I forget whether it's Paul or Peter who says it, but we're to love one another from the heart as brothers. In other words, no longer strangers, but members of the same family. As brothers and sisters who God has brought together in his inimitable way. I'm just conscious of the time, and there's another two hours worth in my note notebook. <laughs> so we'll just see what it is that God want, wants us to f focus on. In, in this chapter, Paul says, or Luke says on his behalf, three times, you know. One of them's missing from the ESV, but I've put it there. Um, three times he says, I know. And four times he flags up Christian truth, the doctrines of our faith. Now, we haven't got time to look at all those, but I'll start by looking at the three things that he says, you know. And what he's saying is, you know this about me. So he's talking about the example that he set the Ephesian Christians. Elsewhere in the New Testament, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Whew, that's a big one, isn't it? Could you say it, say that? You know, I'm... I'm so imitating Jesus that if you imitate me, you'll be imitating Jesus. <sighs> I've never been to one of those fashion shows where there's a catwalk. You can probably imagine why. Um, certainly, I've never been on a cat catwalk. Have any of you been on a catwalk? Yes, Adrian has. Strutting his stuff. <laughs> Beautiful. Modelling the latest swimwear, perhaps. Who knows? <laughs> Do you know, we're on a catwalk every day, all day. Every day, we are setting 
an example. We may be the letter, the only letter that non-Christians read about Christians. Non-Christians may very well judge what Christianity is about by seeing the way we, I, live. So in that sense, we are on a catwalk every day. And Paul could say, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. Oh, sorry, that's what Jesus said. That's Jesus. This is Paul. Join with others in following my example and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Elsewhere, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. So Paul was conscious that through the power of Christ, through the power of the Spirit, he was able to model the Christian life 24-7. I'm sure he didn't get it right all the time. He can't have been perfect because there's only Jesus and God who's perfect. Or is that a heresy? He's a human being who's impacted by the Spirit and he's living as Christ-like a life as he is able to through the power of the Spirit. And if Paul could do it, if Paul could set that high standard, who else can? We can, can't we? So that whatever we do, if someone takes us by surprise, they still get a Christian response. If someone knocks on the door when we're not expecting, oops, better put all that away. Um, or so, someone insults you and it triggers off. Oh, oh gosh, I have to pull that one back because that wasn't very good. Are our responses Christian? Are our responses Christ-like? Are we setting that high example? There are three things that Paul talks about in this letter. And he says that the Ephesian Christians, amongst whom he's lived for th three years, they know, they know. And the first one's in verse 18 of the chapter, and he's talking here about holy living. Verse 18, he says, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. So his conduct, his daily conduct, was something that expressed the life of Christ. You know how I lived. In the midst of great pressure, he still modelled Christ. It was a life for Paul of considerable sacrifice. I believe he was married couldn't have been a member of the Sanhedrin, which he was, unless he was married. But 
I believe according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, his non-Christian wife left him. He allowed her to leave. And so he forewent the joys of a married life. He gave himself to the open road. He gave himself to the Lord Jesus. It was a life of sacrifice. He was beaten up. He was insulted. All sorts of bad stuff happened to him. And yet he picked himself up, or God picked him up. And he kept going. He kept going. And his only concern was that he finished the race and completed the task. He kept going. He would allow nothing to stop him. Are we easily put off or do we push through and keep going? Keep going. Perseverance, persevering, persevering. Run the race set before you with perseverance. Great perseverance. That's one of the things that we need from God. So verse 18 then talked about the example of his life, holy living. Verse 20 Uh, He says, you know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be profitable to you. Now, he was a preacher. We're we're not all preachers, but we're all speakers. Don't think anyone here has taken a vow of silence. Sometimes you might wish that someone had taken a vow of silence, uh, as as of now. Um, But we all speak. We speak. We speak. And Paul was conscious that he could have said anything. But he only preached that which was helpful. And sometimes they would be comfortable words. Oh, we like hearing comfortable words. And sometimes they'd be hard sayings. And Paul is talking to the elders, so they have that responsibility to care for the sheep. And there will be some hard words that leaders have to speak to their flock from time to time. Now we, we speak what, what comes out of our mouths. There's a beautiful passage in Ephesians chapter 4, the last paragraph, starting at verse 29. It says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Nothing rotten, nothing that stinks. That's what unwholesome means. Nothing that's going to contaminate and spoil. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now that's a verse, verse 29 of Ephesians 4. It's worth writing on your chalkboard at home if you've got got one. Or putting in your journal or tattooing on your hand or whatever, because it's our tongues that let us down. It's our tongues that let us down. And Paul's example here was he he chose clearly his words very carefully and only spoke that which was helpful to his hearers. And his example is something that I believe God wants us to copy as well. And thirdly, You've had holy living and wholesome speaking. The third one, where he says, you know, is in verse 34 of Acts 20, where he says, you yourselves know that these hands of mine supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. He was someone who didn't 
wish to be dependent upon other people. But he was determined to help the weak, the vulnerable, the impoverished. And we, too, are under a divine necessity to work hard at helping other people. Paul said, you know that I have a wholehearted attitude towards hard work. I don't dodge chores, I don't dodge the tasks that I have to do, but I give myself fully to, to them. I'm not lazy, I'm not idle, uh, but I seize every opportunity to bless and help other people. And so here, with Paul's own example, we have him saying to the Ephesians, you know my life, holy living. You know the way I speak, wholesome conversation. And you know the way I work, wholehearted application to hard work. Now that's clearly within the circumstances that we find ourselves in. As we get older, of course, the, the ability to, to serve others does diminish. But while there's breath in our bodies, while there's strength in our limbs, while our minds are still working properly, let's serve one another in the same way that Paul served the church in Ephesus. It wasn't casual. It was deliberate. It wasn't random. It was focused. It wasn't, well, it's just something else to do. It was with great love and devotion and commitment so that when it came to Paul leaving them, it seems forever, they wept and wept and wept because this man had done so much. He'd modelled Christ to them and he'd explained and explained again and again the wonderful truths of the faith. That's as far as we can go today. There's another hour to go, but uh, we'll end it there. Um, that's the end of Paul's second and third missionary journey. Journeys. It all happens so, so quickly, doesn't it? And if there comes a time when we pick up Acts again, it will be his journey to Rome. Shall we pray?